And Father, what a, an amazing thought that the nails and the spear which was pierced into Jesus' flesh was for us. God, we are mindful in this Advent season, this Christmas season, that God, you have come. The Word has been made flesh, has dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is the one and only from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And so, Father, in this season, we ask that you would cause within us a new appreciation for the wondrous mystery of Christmas. And more than that, Lord, we would come to understand that there is a manger only because there would one day also be a cross. That the reason why Jesus came was to die for us, to rescue sinners, to ransom sinners. And so, Father, we ask that in this season we would be mindful that it's more than just good feelings and warm beverages and sweaters. This season is a reminder that this world we live in is filled with darkness and sin and evil and wickedness. And yet a light has shone in the darkness. That God, you have promised that a light would come giving and exposing what is necessary We need to see our sin, and so the light has exposed it, but we also need a remedy, and the light has provided it, and that light is Jesus Christ. And so, Father, thank you for being a God who reveals yourself in amazing ways. Most supremely, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in Jesus Christ, who has come for us to rescue us and restore us and redeem us, and behold, he's making all things new again. So, Father, as we uh, enter into this Advent season, continue to impress upon our hearts these beautiful, wondrous truths and work within us by the Holy Spirit to conform us more and more to the image of Jesus. And as we come to your word today, God, would you be pleased to use it in whichever way you see fit, that we might be more and more the people you desire for us to be. So we thank you ahead of time, and we ask now that you would be with us. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Oh, welcome, everyone. Let me get set up over here. It's a little bit new setup, and so uh, I'm a creature of habit. And what that means as a creature of habit is basically I like what I like when I like it and uh, how I like it. And when it gets disturbed, I feel weird. And so I don't have the big gray pulpit anymore. We have our old communion table for the candles here. And uh, watch out for the mask. I think that's flammable. Um, so I'll be careful there. This is Advent season. And I do want to um, remind you, if you have not already done so, we have a few books left. The Dawning of Indestructible Joy by John Piper. Uh, one per household. Don't be, yeah, don't be thinking you're going to get two and sell it on eBay or something like that. Um, so we want to make sure one per household while supplies last. I, I'm not sure we have a whole lot uh, people at 8.30, uh, I think they came to the 8.30 service because it was well attended uh, just to make sure they got one. Um, so that's how it goes. But anyways, we have a few more left as you head out. You look to the left and there's a little cart there. Secondly, I want to let you know, um, when you came in, you probably saw it. And on your way out, you'll see it. To the right, we have this little photo kind of box. And we want to encourage you as a family to go ahead and jump in that box. And uh, you can take a picture with your cell phone and whatnot. 
Um, you can use that as a, I don't know, a Christmas card, or you can just, I don't know, just have it for memory or whatever. Uh, but we have that available. I want to encourage you to utilize that. Uh, next week, what we'll have is the background for the sleigh on the other side. And uh, so then you can do both. And then the week after that, we'll start having photographers out there who will actually uh, take kind of professional pictures. And I don't know how they'll post them, but they'll do something and it'll be fantastic. So I wanted to let you know about those things. Um, and then the last thing is we are having our Christmas Eve service, which is candlelight service. It'll be outside. Uh, we'll be decorating the whole plaza. It'll be beautiful like it was last year, if you recall. And uh, that'll be at 7 o'clock, I believe, and uh, 11.30, which we're calling our midnight service. And, and what's cool about that is right when the clock strikes midnight, um, usually that's when we read the Christmas story and we sort of sing Silent Night. And it is awesome. Uh, if you were there last year, you know how, how cool it was. So I want to invite you to that. Uh, bring friends, family, and all that kind of stuff. All you need is warm clothes, bring a camping chair, and we'll provide the candles and everything else. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, I want to invite you to open it up to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We'll spend some time looking at this text. We'll look around in chapter 8 of this section, but we'll also spend some time bouncing around the Bible just so we can understand a little bit more and more about what Isaiah is communicating in this text. Um, today, we're going to talk about light in the shadows, about how God has promised a light to come into the world of shadows and how healing and restorative that would be. And um, that whole concept of light and whatnot is very, uh, it's very popular um, around Christmas time. And I know this because I make fun of my wife all the time who watches Hallmark Christmas movies. And uh, some of you do too. And you're, you're just like, oh, he better not. Um, but generally speaking, the Hallmark Christmas movie, it's a small town and some investors come and they want to bulldoze some enchanted building and we have to get the town together to save it. Or there's something like that, you know, um, that happens. Uh, and then inevitably you have boy meets girl, girl meets boy, however that works. And they're totally incompatible and they don't like each other and they rub each other, you know, just the wrong way until one day mysteriously they're both ice skating and she falls into his hands. And you're just like, oh, how did that happen? You know, it's so predictable. But at the same time, we're like, oh. Like, we didn't know it was coming. It's, it's the same thing for all 91 movies that are available. So, and then uh, after that, there's some other obstacles that happen between the boy and the girl. She finds out what he's really like. He finds out what she's really like. And now the families are involved. And they're like, he's not good enough for you. And she's not good enough for you. And, and they're like, you're right. And they don't like each other. But then all of a sudden, something else happens. Um, they, you know, some obstacle was overcome together and then they finally realize, even if everyone says we shouldn't be together, we, we should be together. And you know the old song, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. And so it's that kind of stuff. Next thing you know, they decide, you know what? I don't care who knows how I feel about you. We're going to let everyone know. And, and somebody is like, why did you let this come into the light of day? And then, you know, on and on we go. Blech. So... <laughs> I am not a hopeless romantic, but that's, but anyways, that's the plot. And, and what's interesting is there's this theme of letting something come into the light of day, letting something be known, revealing something that was pre previously hidden or unknown or just kind of kept to yourself. That kind of concept is how the Bible often describes um, Jesus is he's that, he's like a, a light which was previously unknown. And so God makes known. He, he brings light. He, ma he makes it 
illumined or revealed or the knowledge of it comes to be. It's that whole metaphoric way of saying, I'm going to make light of this. Not like ha-ha light, but I'm going to illumine. I'm going to make sense of this. And Jesus is described as the light of the world, which means he's the one that makes sense of the world we live in. And he's also more than that. He is the one who has come to heal and restore. The Bible describes light in two metaphoric ways. One is about righteousness and, and holiness and moral purity. And the other way light is described in the Bible, again, is giving information, giving revelation, giving knowledge. And we see in Jesus Christ that both are true. That he is both the one who is righteous and holy and morally perfect, but he's also the one who illumines and gives information, knowledge, and makes known who God is. And that's what we're going to see in this text, Isaiah chapter 9. This Advent season, Jesus comes into a dark world as the light of the world, exposing our need for him and also showing that he is the remedy uh, for what plagues all of us. So here's, here's what Isaiah writes in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. You're familiar with this text mainly because of verse 6, which is about a child being born and the government is being upon his shoulders and he has those four amazing names. We'll talk about that later. Right now, we're just looking at verse 1 and 2. Here's what we read. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So we're going to look at this and try to figure out what is the darkness here? What is this light? Who are these people who are living in darkness and how have they seen this great light? And what we'll do is try to unpack all of that. But before we do that, we, we need to stop and, and just make sure that we're all on the same page about what Advent is. You heard uh, Pastor Bo Lee and his wife Cindy and the kids talk about Advent. It basically means coming. It means appearing or revealing. It's a Latin word, Adventus. And uh, it refers to Jesus' first and second coming. Now, why that's significant is normally during Christmas, we focus almost exclusively on Jesus' first coming which is his birth. And we sometimes say, let's just enjoy the you know, baby Jesus. Let's not rush to think about Jesus in terms of his cross and resurrection. And uh, I want to advise the fact that the whole reason why there was sweet baby Jesus is because there was going to be Jesus on the cross. And we cannot, we cannot separate those two. And so I want to start with this text here, which just kind of helps us see how there's two advents two comings of Jesus. But as it is in Hebrews 9, we read, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, I want to point out a couple things in this text, which is, I, I would say, is significant. One is in verse 26, we see that Jesus appeared once, once for all, at the end of the ages. At the end of the ages means at the end of time, the end times. And I know it's popular right now with coronavirus and various other things to go, are we living in the end times? 
And it just so happens that a pastor somewhere just wrote a new prophecy book. It's his ninth one this last year. So the question is, are we living in the end times? And of course, verse 26 would tell us, yes. In fact, when Jesus came the first time, that was the end of the ages. So 2,000 years ago was the beginning of the end of the ages, just in case you're wondering and you're freaked out. So don't be alarmed by what you read in the newspaper. Don't be alarmed by what new prophecy book has just come out. We've been living in the final days for a really long time. God is God. You're not. Let him do his thing and trust him all along the way. When Jesus came, he came to put away sin. He came to forgive sin, take away sin through the sacrifice of himself, that is through his cross. Which means, brothers and sisters, that we have to remember Jesus did not appear on earth to be a great moral teacher. He did not come on Christmas in order to be an inspiring mascot in your self-improvement project. Jesus did not come to inspire you to lose that, you know, that sticky last 10 pounds that you can't seem to shake. Jesus didn't come to inspire you to be a better version of yourself. Jesus came to do away with your sin. Jesus came to be killed. And I don't know if you noticed, but if you put those two things in a scale, like what is more serious? Jesus as your, you know, like self-improvement mascot or Jesus coming knowingly and joyfully to be crucified? (laughs) Hopefully we will choose crucified Jesus as being far more weighty in our hearts and minds. And so we know that Jesus came for a reason. Jesus came, uh, 1 John 3, 5. He came in order to take away sins. In, In him, there's no sin. Jesus didn't come to die for his own sins. He came to die for yours. And so this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, as Paul writes, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus did not come into the world because you needed a pep talk. Jesus did not come into the world because you are full of potential, you just haven't actualized it yet. Jesus came into the world because the world is filled with wickedness and evil and sin and death and chaos and injustice and you're part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. For we are the ones who perpetrate these things. Jesus came to do something of that. And what Paul says is, I'm the worst sinner there is. In the song that we just sang, What Child Is This? We read the, or we sang these lyrics. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh the babe, the son of Mary. Do you see the connection in what we just saying between the babe, the son of Mary, who was born, word made flesh, and the fact that he was going to a cross and he was going to be pierced for you and I. David Mathis, who's a professor and pastor, he wrote this in one of his uh, Advent reading books. He says, the word made flesh without a cross in view is not good news at all. The light and joy of Christ are hollow if we ever sever the link between Bethlehem and Golgotha. Christmas is for you. 
only because his life was for you and his death was for you and his triumphant resurrection on the other side was for you. The death and resurrection doesn't ruin Christmas as many people think. The death and resurrection of Jesus is what gives this season its power. And I know many people are like, oh, let's not spoil the you know, manger baby Jesus with all the blood talk. No. The whole reason there is a manger is because behind it, lurking in the shadows, is a gruesome cross. And either he is going to be crucified on it and pay for sins, or you'll do it yourself. And Christmas is about the good news that you don't have to do it yourself. God has substituted himself in your place if you're willing. Jesus came in the first advent to save sinners by putting away their sin through his life, death, and resurrection. That is exactly why he came, and that's what we are remembering in Advent season. But not just his first coming, we're also remembering his second coming. Remember this in verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This Jesus will come again. And as Pastor Bo said in the lighting of the candle, Jesus has come and is coming again. His second advent is not to deal with sin because that's already been dealt with. The cross was sufficient. His resurrection was proof that God indeed forgives those who will repent and believe. But instead, when Jesus returns, he is coming for those who eagerly wait for him. And when he comes for those who eagerly wait for him, he's coming in finality and fullness. He will ultimately save his people. In other words, all that God has promised through the work of his son will finally and fully come to fruition. You can see there's two comings of Christ now. There's two advents. The first advent, incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension to save sinners. Second advent, is when God will finalize what he has begun. And you and I who believe in Jesus, we are now considered citizens of heaven. If we believe in Jesus, we no longer have our primary citizenship in this world. Instead, our primary citizenship is in heaven. And it's from heaven in which we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power by which he subjects all things to himself. In other words, you and I are awaiting the day in which our citizenship in heaven will finally come complete. And in that day, what will happen is these bodies that we all have currently, which are sin-ravaged, which are decaying at a rapid rate for many of us, in which we fear getting diseases, and we know that looming behind every morning we wake up, is the possibility that it may be our last. God has given us this dose of reality that your bodies and this present world is not everlasting. But when he returns, the dead in Christ will raise and we, if we're left on the earth, will see him as he is and he will transform our lowly bodies instantaneously. No more death, no more disease, no more lowly, decaying, sin-ravaged bodies. We will be like his glorious body, never to die again, never to experience sorrow or suffering or pain again. 
And yet that's not true yet. And so you and I live in this amazing time between what is called the already and the not yet. Already our sins are forgiven. Already God promises that he has saved us. He has justified us. Already we are his. Already we are citizens of heaven. But the fullness of all those things is not yet complete. We do not yet have our resurrection body. We do not yet experience life as it will be in the new heavens and new earth. We are not yet there. And so you and I live in this tension between the first advent and the second advent. We live between Christ's first coming and second coming. And as we wait, we long. We long. We yearn. We eagerly wait. Because we know what awaits us. And we're saying, Lord, bring it. And while we wait, God by his grace is supplying us everything that we need. So we're not lacking in any gift as we wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's amazing about our waiting in the tension between the first coming and the second coming is that God will sustain us to the very end. Until the day in which Jesus descends and Jesus comes back in the second advent, until that day comes, God is faithful to preserve you to the very end. You will not lack anything you need to continue to trust him as you eagerly wait for his coming. And that's exactly what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God is faithful. God will come through for us. Some people are scared to death when Jesus returns and they have every reason to be. Because it won't go well for them. But those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus, we know that that day is a triumphant, joyous day because in that day, all of our dreams finally come true. God will make us as he promised us. Eternal, imperishable, unspoiled, undefiled. And we will finally live with him forever and ever, free of all disease, decay, destruction, sin, evil, and everything else. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more tears. And in the meantime, we wait. God has indeed appeared. In fact, the grace of God has appeared. In the first advent, Jesus has come bringing salvation for all people, people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. Jesus is not reserving his grace for those who are most earnest, most deserving, most white, most Republican. Jesus comes in full grace for people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group, for the poor, for the lowly, for the minority, for the majority, for the educated, uneducated, for the mute, for the deaf, for the blind, for the powerful. He comes for them all. And when the grace of God has appeared in the first advent of Jesus, bringing that salvation for all people, that grace of God also does one thing for us in two different ways. It trains us. That's what it does. As we meditate, think upon the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, it trains us to do two things. Number one, is to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And secondly, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Remember last week, during our last week of our uh, church series, I said that many people ignorantly 
conceive of salvation in Jesus Christ as merely the removal of sin and saving you from the wrath of God. When in fact, God is very clear, yes, he saves you from your sin, forgives you of your sin, rescues you from the just wrath of God that you deserve. And that's not all. He also compels you, propels you, empowers you to live the life that he has purchased for you through Jesus Christ. And so you're not only removed from sin, but you also are given the power to overcome sin. So you die to death and you live to life. And that's exactly what we see here is we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions by the first coming of Jesus and we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age through the first coming of Jesus. But in the meantime, we wait. We are waiting for our blessed hope. And what is the hope that we wait for? And by the, word that, by the way, that Greek word blessed there means happy. What is it that gladdens the heart? What is it that makes us joyous people? What is it that makes us the kind of people who in the midst of such darkness and sin and chaos and death can be simultaneously mournful and yet always rejoicing? Because we have hope in the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what makes Jesus so glorious? That word glory there means worth, value, What is it that makes Jesus so glorious? In other words, so valuable, so precious. It is the fact that he gave himself for us. To redeem us from all lawlessness. Remember, that's the negative side of it, to take away sin. But secondly, Jesus is glorious. He is infinitely worthy and valuable because he also purifies for himself we, his people, so that we, his people, would be zealous or passionate for good works. The first advent trains us to be godly and to put to death sin. And we live in this tension between the already and not yet. We have been made perfect. We have been redeemed, but it's not yet complete. But while we wait, let's get busy doing the king's business. In this world, brothers and sisters, we notice it's not, it's not the way it should be, and you all know it. Thanksgiving was great for many of us, most of us. Watched football, ate food, laughed, played board games, did a puzzle, perhaps, had family around, embraced the, I don't know, chaos of big family gatherings, whatever it may be. And at the same time, you were able to look at your news feed later that evening and see that the world is broken. Coups around the world. Starvation around the world. Injustices around the world. And so yet in the light of this glorious, radiant joy of thanksgiving, there is this darkness of sin and evil. And that is because we don't live in a carefree world. We live in a world that is still haunted by sin and evil and death. It's a world that is not completely dark. It's not completely dark. And that's because Christ has come, so there's some light. But it's also not a world filled with light because we still see sin and evil and darkness. Instead, we live in a world of shadows. And as you all know, a shadow requires some light. But that shadow that is cast is not utter darkness. 
So our tension in this world is that we live between the first coming and second coming of Jesus in which there is all kinds of shadowy things going on. You see some brilliant light and you see some tragic darkness and they mingle. And that's why we yearn and that's why we wait and that's why we are eager for God to come. And that is similar to what was happening in the Old Testament people's lives. The Old Testament saints were living in a dark world and they were promised that a Messiah would come who would bring light and life. And so they waited and they yearned and they longed for that day and finally Jesus came and their, satis- their, their, their consolation was provided. Their, their yearning was satisfied. But we as the people of God after the first advent are still yearning and waiting just like the Old Testament saints and we're saying, come Lord Jesus, come. Because this is not the way it's supposed to be yet. Now let's go to Isaiah 9. In that kind of context, we read, There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he, that is God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which, by the way, is two tribes in the northern part of Israel, which makes up Galilee, which is the area in which Jesus is from. And he goes on to say, in the later time, latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. And the people who walked in this darkness, this gloomy darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You see, there's a group of people who are walking in darkness. They're living in a land of deep darkness. And what does that mean? In order to understand that, we have to go back to chapter 8, and you're starting in verse 16 through 18. That kind of gives us a little, a little understanding of it. If you look in verse 16, God is marking off his people as those who persevere in his word. What we mean is this, is that God is able to identify which people are his and which ones aren't based on who is committed to him and his word. If you're not committed to God through his word, then you're not his people. Verse 16, and then there's verse 17 where Isaiah begins to speak on behalf of the true people of God, those who persevere in his word. He speaks on their behalf to God and says, we're going to continue to trust and hope in you, Lord, even if it gets tough and even when it gets tough and even when life becomes hard, we're going to press on, we're not going to quit, we're going to hold to your word and we're going to stay true to you. And then in verse 18, he promises that he and his family, his wife and children will Remain faithful, and they will be witnesses in the world for God. And then we enter into verse 19. In the midst of all this, that God has a remnant of true believers committed to him and his word, Isaiah being one of them. Isaiah gives this warning concerning the temptation we all experience to abandon God's word in favor of other stuff. He says in verse 19, and when they say to you, these just other people, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? In other words, what's happening is people are abandoning God and his revelation, which is his word, the scriptures, and instead they're turning to the occult. They're turning to mediums and fortune tellers and necromancers who They try to tell the future and predict the future and their palm reading and tarot cards and all the other stuff. Horoscopes. God's people, don't you have something better than all that jazz? 
You've got God who has revealed himself in a book. Pick up the book and read it. Quit going to the palm readers. And so Isaiah is saying, look, when they tell you, no, 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 the Bible's not enough. You need more than that. You should say, shouldn't his people inquire of their God? Like, isn't that enough? God's not enough for you? And the necromancers and the spiritualists and the occult, what they love to do is they put on a show. Um, it's amazing to read about this stuff. They had these colorful robes and they had like potions and stuff and they did chemistry in the sense where they would like throw things together and then they would like, you know, like they didn't put on their safety goggles, but it, things would explode and people were like, oh, how did they do that? And they would put on this incredibly insightful, incredibly sensational, interesting show. And people would go to them all the time like, how could they be wrong? Look at what they're doing. This is fun to watch. And yet Isaiah says, wait, God's word is not good enough for you? So basically what you're choosing is sensationalism, entertainment over God's revelation? The people are tempted to no longer consult God. They're tempted to ignore God. Now, why is that? Verse 20. It is because they have no dawn, the end of the verse says. It's because they have no light. They have no knowledge. They have no understanding. They have no righteousness. They're living in spiritual darkness. And so the contrast or, or the solution is the beginning of verse 20. And he says, to the teaching and to the testimony. You see, the remedy for living in darkness is go to the light. Duh. <laughs> I can't see. Open your eyes, dummy. Oh, it's amazing how that works. And so people are living in darkness. They're living in spiritual darkness. They don't understand what's going around them. And, and then they're saying, well, we, we don't understand. So let's go to the mediums and the necromancers and the fortune tellers and the palm readers and our tarot cards and horoscopes. We'll figure out life. No. Go to the testimonies. Go to the scriptures. Because there you will find the light you need to make sense of the world in which we live. But the people have no dawning. They don't understand that's where true spiritual life is to be found. They're living in darkness. As Paul, he picks this up in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, don't live as unbelievers in the futility of their minds. And how do they live? How do unbelievers live? They're darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The worst thing about living in spiritual darkness is to recognize that you have a need and yet you believe that the one true remedy won't work. You see, I almost guarantee you, oh no, I will. I guarantee every human being understands that there's some part of themselves which they feel is off, wrong, just not enough. 
I would venture to say every single person here, including myself, has or is familiar with guilt. And when that guilt goes unresolved, it swells and and gives birth to shame. And the shame causes us to hide. It causes us to make sure people don't know us. It causes us to pretend. It causes us to use our social media, not to be honest, but to make sure it's highly edited, highly staged, highly curated, glimpses and snapshots into a life we wish we were actually living. And none of us will be the wiser. And yet we all do it, and so we all know their life isn't as good as it seems on Instagram. It's not as good as it seems on Facebook. And I know that because my life isn't as good as I pretend it to be. Something's off. There's darkness in each of our hearts. And so as a solution, many of us will run to all kinds of things. We will run to escapism. Whenever we feel the tinge of guilt and shame in our heart and the temptation to hide and the temptation to feel sorry for ourselves and to just admit freely, we are not as good as we think we are. We run to Netflix. We run to food. We run to pornography. And we try to escape those feelings. We don't like them. And then every time we do, we come out of that stupor feeling worse for having done what we just did. And all of us know it. You know it. The prescribed remedies from this world do not satisfy. They do not work. The people knew their need, just like we know our need, knowing that we live in a broken, dark world filled with sin and evil and all kinds of unspeakable tragedies and horrors, and yet we keep going on and on as if we will somehow fix it in our own power and strength. Look at verse 21. These people living in the darkness, these people who abandon God's word and the light and remedy that it offers, they pass through the land greatly distressed and they're hungry. And when they're hungry, they're enraged and they speak contemptuously against their king and their God and they turn their faces upward. If you've ever taken something away from a little, little child, less than maybe two years old, and they do that, <clears throat> you know exactly what that's like. So here are these people hungry, feeling their need. And instead of turning to the God who provides, they turn away from the God who provides. Enraged at God, how dare you? And then in verse 22, instead they look to the earth and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. What's happening here? The people filled with longing, filled with hunger, filled with a need, But because of their spiritual darkness, they don't see that their satisfaction will come from God through his word. Instead, what they do is they turn to the earth. That is, they turn to human resources and ingenuity to fix what's broken. God, we're hungry, but we're not coming to you. We're just going to farm harder. God, we are are dissatisfied in this world. We need your help. Ah, forget that. We'll figure it out. We don't need you. I mean, look at us. We're creative. Some of us have all kinds of resources. We'll figure it out. God, we don't need you. 
In fact, we don't want you. And so, we today make the same mistake. We, more and more, are becoming people who will look at our broken world filled with sin and chaos and destruction and death, and we will say, ah, but if we just pursue a different economic strategy or political strategy, or if we can just find a technological solution, we will be able to fix our world. We know it's dark, we know it's broken, but you know what? We can do it. We can pull together, and with our mixture of intelligence and innovation, we could put what is wrong right. We could do it. And then we try to convince each other that we can do it. Tim Keller, he recounts in a book called The Hidden Christmas of a New York Times article he uh, read that said this. After all, it's obvious that the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. That's Christmas. Tim Keller comments, in other words, what the world says is we have the light within us. And so we are the ones who can dispel the darkness of the world. We can overcome poverty, injustice, violence, and evil. If only we will work together, we can create a world of unity and peace. And if we're just being honest, humanity has not been able to save ourselves as of yet. And I would say, and never will. Humanity cannot save itself by means of some new economic or political or technological process. Many people believe that there is some system, we just haven't found it yet, but if we can get it, there is a system of politics or economics that will just cure all the world's woes. If we just find it. We haven't found it yet, but we will find it. There is some ideological or technological solution out there and we will resolve the world's issues. We can do it, you guys. Let's make a Hallmark movie real quick to prove it. (laughs) If we just come together as the world, arm in arm, hand in hand, we can fix the world. How has that worked thus far? When we were promised that the internet will fix so many problems like poverty, lack of education, and on and on. We probably did not anticipate that the same internet which posed so much hope is now the source of such grave evils. There is more pornography in the world today than at any other time in human history combined. And it is destroying men and women and marriages and family and teenagers. It is destroying them. That technological advancement has not solved anything. We are still living in a world of darkness. And in fact, if you look at the last little section, verse 22, the last little sentence, When we pursue our own kind of self-improvement project, we don't look to God, but we look to ourselves to fix it all. The result is they will be thrust into thick darkness. 
Christmas is not about the triumph of human love that can and will fix the world and usher in some sort of utopic unity and peace. Christmas teaches us that we cannot save ourselves. And because we cannot save ourselves, God had to intervene. And when God intervened, he came to fix the brokenness. And if the whole thing is broke, we need someone from outside to come inside to fix because there's no in-house solution. And lo and behold, God has come. From the outside, he has come. The eternal word of God, the second person of the Trinity, has become a human being. And heaven has come to earth. (laughs) Now in this context, this is why Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 is so significant. This people who live in utter darkness, this thick darkness, filled with anguish and gloom, look at this hopeful promise. But there will be, in the future, no gloom for her who was in anguish. You mean to tell me that it won't always be this bad? That's right. It won't always be this way. You see, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That is, the land of Galilee was under God's judgment. But in the latter time, God has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What is so glorious about Galilee? What's so amazing about Galilee of the nations? What's so amazing about Galilee of the ethnos, the peoples, all peoples? What's so glorious about this? These people who walk in darkness, verse 2, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You see, a glorious light, God promises, will come from Galilee and bring all that is good and right to a dark world. And that glorious light will shine upon dark people, people who are spiritually blind. What is this light? In the beginning was the Word, John says, chapter 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This word was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, that is the word, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, there's darkness in the land, and there's the shadow of death that has enveloped everyone. And yet in the midst of these shadows and darkness, there's a glorious dawning from Galilee that will be the light of life. And we understand in John 1 that this light that comes into the world is the light of life, which means it is illuminescence of how to have life. It is the information. It is the knowledge. It is how we come to understand true and abiding and eternal, qualitatively superior life is through the light that comes into the world and makes this known. And this light of life, this eternal life, this 
Light that extinguishes the darkness, which brings life instead of death. This light shines in a dark world. And what's amazing is the darkness has not nor ever will overcome it. That is to say, this light of life is undefeatable. There's nothing in the world that can extinguish this light. And so we see that this word is eternal. This word is God. This word was with God. This word is the creator. This word is how the creation exists. This word is the life. This word provides moral knowledge, moral purity. This word is the presence of God. And if you have this word, you have the light of life in you. Who is that word? And next we read about a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Why does he bear witness about this light? It's so that all might believe through him. The whole point of the light coming is so you can believe in the light. Now John wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. But the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Who is that? And that's why we come to John 1, 14. The word, this word, this God, this eternal God, this creator God, the one through whom all creation exists, this morally perfect, life-giving word, it became flesh. And it dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And now we have our answer. Who is this word? It is the one who is full of grace and truth, the end of verse 14. And who is it that is full of grace and truth? The end of verse 17. Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the one who was with God, who is creating all things, by whom, for whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. This Jesus Christ is the one who has perfect moral knowledge, perfect moral purity. He is the one in whom God's presence fully dwells. He is the one who gives life. He is the one who is the light of the world. He is the one in which no power in this dark world will ever be able to extinguish. Jesus is the one and only Lamb of God, and he is also the Lion of Judah, and he is also the light that gives life to all all who will believe. And this Jesus, this Jesus said it simply like this, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I will give you life as it was meant to be. You and I know that this world is broken. This world is a travesty of what it ought to be. And yet you and I feel at times, we get a glimpse, there's this faint echo in our hearts and minds of a better world. And we say to ourselves, it shouldn't be like this. How do you know it shouldn't be like this? Unless God has placed something inside of you, a longing perhaps, a knowing perhaps, an unarticulated feeling, perhaps. It should be better than this. And for those who believe in Jesus, it will be better than this. God has come to restore and to redeem. So Jesus Christ is the incarnate 
Word of God, Son of God, who is God, was with God. He is the one who is undefeatable. He is the one in whom there is life. So Jesus has come from the outside into the darkness of this present world to call out sinners from the darkness and to bring them into the light of himself. Now, how exactly does he do this? How does he call people out of darkness? How does he bring them out of darkness and into the light? How does he give them life? He says, while you have the light, while you are able, while you have breath in your lungs, while you are capable of hearing this, you need to respond by believing in the light. And if you do that, you will become sons and daughters of light. Remember, the light metaphor here is about knowledge, about illumination, about moral purity, about righteousness. It's about life. And if you believe in Jesus, who is the light of the world, then you will become life. Sons and daughters who have true abiding life. Because Jesus said, I came into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We have this notion in our minds, brothers and sisters, that Jesus somehow came and we're all morally neutral or basically good. No. If you don't respond in faith, God's just going to let you remain in your darkness. And you can't remain in something that you weren't already in. You see, we're all already in darkness as it is. And so God says, look, the darkness, which symbolizes death and sin and evil and chaos. Look, you can have that if you want. But I came to give life. And the difference is, do you believe? Will you believe? Or will you merely remain in darkness? Will you love your sin too much to put faith in Jesus and to escape? Now, why in the world would somebody choose that? Uh, for me, up until I was about 18, 19 years old, it just made sense to not believe in Jesus. And then all of a sudden, it made sense to believe in him. And then people often ask me, Phil, what happened? Like, what was the day? What was the day? I was like, I don't know. It's like 90 of them or so. Because it was like, over time... The Lord just made sense. I had friends my freshman year who committed suicide. I had a, a Spanish partner, um, partner in one of my Spanish classes, who died of a car accident at the beginning of my senior year. Um, there were other things I witnessed, and I was there in the presence of that I just looked around and I was like Dude, this is terrible this world is broke down and yet at the same time you would see glimpses of something better but I didn't know how to put two and two together until somebody helped me put two and two together and they talked about Jesus and it was the first time I understood that Christmas wasn't about Rudolph or grandma getting run over by the reindeer or anything like that it was the first time I sat in a rocking chair looking at the Christmas tree, listening to Christmas music on 96.1 and hearing Christmas carols about Jesus and going, whoa, Hark the Herald Angels Sing was the song that I literally stopped rocking and was like, wait, what? God and sinners reconciled? What? 
But for so long, I couldn't see it. And I believe it's because 2 Corinthians 4, as it explains it in verse 4, it says, like, the God of this, of this age, the God of this world, Satan, in the case of unbelievers like myself, I was blinded. My mind could not comprehend, could not see. And what was I blinded from? What was I blinded from seeing and apprehending? Satan was keeping me from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the word here, light of the gospel, means to be made known through the gospel. That is, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the good news of God coming to rescue sinners. Satan blinds people from seeing that. But not just seeing it factually, but seeing the glory of it. And the glory here means worth, value, preciousness. And so what Satan does to people and keeping them in their unbelief is they will, they will see Jesus, hear about him dying, rising, and all that kind of stuff, and they, and they won't see it. They'll be like, what? Who cares? They don't see the gloriousness of it. They don't see the joy of it. They don't see the amazing preciousness of Christ. They don't see Jesus as valuable or worthy. They're just like, oh, anyways, what time's the game on? And that is the evidence of those who have been brought from death to life. The evidence is found in when you hear of Jesus and contemplate Jesus in your mind, are you overwhelmed with his worth and value? Do you see how supremely worthwhile it is to know Christ? Or are you bored? Because if you're bored, you're blind. And if you're blind, you're going to die in your sins. And the only way for us to see is if God will do something from the outside. And God has done something. Woo! Hooray! God has said this, look, the, the, the God who said let light shine out of darkness, just to give you a glimpse of this, the God who speaks into existence all that there is, let, let there be light, Genesis 1. You and I don't have that kind of power, and yet we pretend we do every day. No, I'll fix the world. No, you won't. You can't speak in things into existence. As much as these false teachers tell you today with the word of faith movement, they're garbage. It's not true. Only God speaks things into existence. Sorry, NFL athletes. And this God who speaks into existence things that are, look at this, he has shown in our hearts, shown light. God shines a light into our dark hearts filled with sin and selfishness and thoughts of evil and whatnot, plagued with guilt, heavy laden with shame. God shines in that dark heart and gives us by his grace the light in order to see the knowledge of the glory of God, the knowledge, the, the apprehension of how precious and beautiful and treasurable Jesus really is. It's in the face of Christ that we see how much God is lovely and worthy. And so the difference between believers and unbelievers is simply this. When you see Jesus, are you enthralled? Does your heart soar? Is there joy to have? Do you see God as infinitely precious? Or are you bored? And if you're bored, you're not a believer. There's no way. If you yawn at the things of Christ... 
why then would God grant to you life in him? And that was me. I could care less about Jesus. It was lame, boring. He was like a wet blanket on my fun. And then all of a sudden, everything made sense. Well, wait, that's why? Wait, that's why there's evil in the world? Wait, that's why I feel as though the world shouldn't be like this? And then when you hear about how God so loved me that he rescued me at the coming of his son from outside this world, penetrated this world, brought heaven to earth to save me even though I'm his enemy and I hate him and I'm bored with him, he comes, makes me his own and gives me a place amongst the inheritance of the saints. I don't deserve any of it. But it makes sense. When God does that, he shines a light in your heart and you are awakened to new life. And when you are awakened to new life, you see the preciousness of Christ. I can't save myself. I can't fix this world. But Jesus has come to do that and so much more. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is how we get life. So the message of Christmas is not what the positive thinking gurus tell you, which is this. We have everything we need to fix this broken world if we'll just pull together and work harder. Or I've encountered some nihilistic dystopian people who are like Eeyore. Mm, Nothing good in this world. Doesn't really matter. In the end, we all die. There's nothing to look forward to. Who cares? That's not the message of Christmas either. The message of Christmas and Christianity for that matter is this. The world is truly broken. It is dark. It is sinful. It is evil. It is unjust. It is ravaged by death and chaos. And it's probably worse than you and I even realize. Nevertheless, there is hope. The hope is that God has promised a light from the outside will come and illumine this dark world and on a people dwelling in deep darkness, a light will dawn and people's minds will be awakened and their hearts will flood with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. They will see how much God loves them and they will see how much God loves his world that he came and stepped into time and space to reconcile it, redeem it, and restore it to its good and rightful place. And that is the echo you and I know. We know it's supposed to be better than this. And brothers and sisters, it will be better than this. And so friends, I ask you, repent of your sins, turn to Jesus, believe in him, And that faint echo in your heart where you know, you know, it's going to be better. It has to be better. There has to be more. There is. And it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You won't receive it in fullness and finality now because we live between the first advent and the second advent. But you can be confident and you can be secure in the fact that what God has said will come to fruition in the end. He will preserve you by his grace until the day of Christ. And when that day comes, you get it all. And the light that Jesus gives is undefeatable. (laughs) Undefeatable. I don't even know if that's a word, but it should be. You'll look it up right now and you'll tell me after the service. I know you will. (laughs) 
how does this happen, brothers and sisters? How does this work? One of my favorite texts of scripture, this is the message we have heard, John says, and we proclaim to you all, that God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. God is morally blameless and perfect. In other words, God is holy. Now, if you say that you have fellowship with him and yet you walk in the darkness, you lie and you don't practice the truth. How can you claim to be in God who is light and yet you are walking in darkness? But he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we'll have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see that that guilt and that shame that plagues many of us, if not all of us, it comes from sin. Whether or not you want to acknowledge that, it comes from sin. And the moment you are forgiven of sin from an opinion that truly matters and has weight is the moment you will be liberated from guilt and shame. And God will remind you time and time again your mind by virtue of mercy and grace, not performance. You are mine because I bought you with the precious blood of my son. Not because you deserved it or earned it. I did it because I wanted you. And that changes everything. You see, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us, verse 8. See, some people will say, no, 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 no. my guilt and shame is not from sin. Because that's not really a part of my life. Yes, it is. And if you don't believe that, ask a friend, (laughs) phone a neighbor. But the reality is this, and so comforting, if we will simply confess our sin, God is faithful, and he will forgive us. But not only is God faithful to forgive us, God is just. That is, God is so holy that he cannot let any sin go unpunished. So your sin will be punished. But it's either you'll be punished for it or by faith you will accept that Jesus has been punished for it. And the inexhaustible wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus and fully satisfied. Or you have to face that on your own. And you don't have what it takes to stand it. And so I beg you, I implore you, throw yourself upon the mercy of God and he will save you. He will cleanse you. He will wash you clean. He will give you life. And if you say you don't have sin, you make God a liar. His word is not in you. You see, that's what the people did in Isaiah 8 and 9. They're like, we don't need your word, God. We, We know what's up. We know how to do life. God says, no, you don't. It's obvious everywhere. Look how dark this world is and is becoming. And so, don't make God a liar. Lastly, let me do this. If we, as Christians who believe in Jesus, that is, we turn from our sins, but trusting that he is the light of the world to give life to all who will believe, that his life was sufficient, his death was sufficient, his resurrection secured for us eternal life in Jesus' name, then we need to live as children of light if we are truly sons and daughters of light. We need to live like it because this world is dark. It is a world filled with shadows. It's a place that needs more light to expose sin and the need for Jesus, but at the same time to offer simultaneously the remedy 
for our disease. And how we do that, I'm going to do this pretty quickly. Number one is this. We do this with our words. You see, God has said that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people for his own possession. You see, God wanted you. God has exalted you to royalty. He has made you a sanctified people together. And God is your God and you are his people. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the whole point. You being saved is not primarily about you. It's about God. (laughs) And so God says, go tell people how awesome I am. God is not an egomaniac, for there's no greater being than God. God has no other gods before God. God's not an idolater. And therefore, it's good of God and it's loving of God to say, your full satisfaction will be found in me because I made you for myself. And that is what it means to glorify God and to find your greatest joy. So go and make that known. There's joy to be had, and it's found in God, in the person of Jesus Christ. And not only in our words, but also our works. As Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. The way in which we live matters, brothers and sisters. And if we let our light shine, people will see. And if you notice, it's always God-oriented. Some of us love to be obedient when other people are watching because we want to be glorified by them. Remember, you are who you are when no one is looking. And even when no one's looking, be obedient. And God will get the glory. And if people are watching, so be it. The second thing we need to do is make sure that we're living as lights until the very end of the age. There's this propensity for many people to throw in the towel because it's hard. But Jesus told us ahead of time, it's going to be hard. It's impossible. People are going to hate you because of me. You're like, oh, man, that stinks. That's right. And increasingly in America, being a Christian no longer has the cultural cachet that it used to. Nobody feels ashamed for not going to church anymore on Sundays. People get weird looks for going to church, even by Christians. You went to church today? That's weird. So press on. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Just realize that God is doing a work in you like the dawning in your heart. The light shines like a dawn in the morning, but God is incrementally going to make you brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter until the full day of Christ. That is when Jesus returns. So some days you'll be really good. Some days you'll be terrible. Some days, three days forward, two steps back, and you feel like a failure and successful and all this kind of, all of that is part of God's providential plan. The one thing you can't do is quit. God will see to it. That he'll bring to completion the work that he has begun in you. So don't abandon him or the gospel. And lastly this. We live in this world between the tension of the first coming and the second coming. We must live in light of the glory of God that is to come in the new heavens and new earth. This is heaven. Oh, this is good. The apostle John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And in the New Testament, who was the bride of Christ? The church. And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And later on in that same revelation, John said, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, that is, by the Lamb's light, that is, by the gospel, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates shall never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is a snapshot, a vision of what awaits those who believe in Jesus, a place where there's no more, as you can see, no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Instead, what is there is the light of the Lamb. There is life. There is joy, immensible. And there is the glory of the nations. For people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And oh, what a sight that will be to see people from every walk of life and to hear the clamor of various languages and to know what everyone's saying at the same time. To see the radiant beauty of the way people dress and the way people carry themselves. To smell the aromas of food from many cultures. Because God is a God of complexity and yet simplicity. And God is a God of wonder. And God is a God who loves variety. And I can't wait for that day. And as we wait, brothers and sisters, it's according to God's promise We are waiting for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, since we are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We live as lights in this dark world when we realize this is not our home. We are pilgrims just passing through. And we cannot live as though this life is all that we have, because it's not. We cannot be people who are subscribing to FOMO, fear of missing out. You cannot make decisions in life where to live and buy homes and cars as though that's all this life is about. We can't act as though there's nothing that awaits. There's more. And when that day comes, when Jesus returns and the second advent has been brought to fruition and that day we will enter into the new heavens and new earth a place in which righteousness dwells and until that day we live in the tension brothers and sisters it's hard but we're here together we'll help each other get through it and we will be diligent to be pure to be blameless to be spotless 
just as Christ desires his bride to be. And at the same time, we will cry out, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And so, Father, we ask for your grace. We ask for your grace in order to believe as we ought to believe. God, we ask that you would grant to us all that we need to walk faithfully with you. Lord, we confess to you that we see that this world is broken. It is filled with death and chaos and there is sin and evil. And Lord, for many of us, we have the humility to confess to you that we are perpetrators of it ourselves. We confess to you our sins, asking for your grace of forgiveness. God, would you cleanse us of our guilt? Would you cleanse us of our shame? Would you grant to us a new and clear conscience that we may serve you, the living God? God, may we be people who understand that we are a blood-bought people and that you desire for us not only to learn how to renounce ungodliness, but to learn how to live godly lives in this present age as we wait for your return. And so we pray, Lord, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And restore and renew and redeem and reconcile. But until that day comes, make us a faithful people to love you and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And God, I pray for those who are here who do not yet believe. I pray, God, that by the Holy Spirit's power that you would overcome Satan and you would unblind their minds. Shine light in their hearts, Lord. Even now as we speak, Lord, cause them to believe that there's life and Jesus has secured it for all time. Grant them faith, I pray. And God, as we close our service singing and addressing one another, I pray that you would encourage our hearts and strengthen your church and you would do so for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name.